First of all, thank you so much for everyone being here. This is such an honor. Uh, it's been five years in the making. It's such an honor that you are here today as well. We so appreciate it. And uh, again, just from the bottom of my heart to all my friends, to my family that came out, that flew out, uh, thank you. I'm just overwhelmed, really. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nia. This is such an important book. And before we go on, I want to ask your wife, your mother and your father who are here to stand up and get a round of applause. I think it's so great that you showed up tonight on publication night. It's so important. Um, I've written 15 books and it never gets old. It's always like this special moment. I'm told if you've had 15 children, it's the same. <laughs> So, you know, there, there are a lot of cliches around books, but all of them are true about this book. It's the book of the moment. It's a book urgently needed, and it's a blueprint for a future we desperately need. Now, because of my accent, when I say indestructible, it sounds like indestructible. <laughs> In fact, as John said, uh, the two words, the way I pronounce them, are indistinguishable. But there's something good about it, because if we become indestructible, we are actually indestructible. <laughs> and um, tonight, before you've read the book, is the only time you're allowed to be distracted. After that, we're going to be attention shaming you. Uh, but I would be very grateful, and so would Nir, if you're not on your phones, unless you are taking pictures to post and promote the book. <laughs> <laughs> right? But otherwise, please refrain from texting or emailing your friends. They'll still be there. And <laughs> I just truly believe, Nia, as, as we said the first time we met when you were still writing the book, that this is going to be the superpower of the 21st century. You know, it used to be jumping over buildings. Now it's going to be being indestructible. So let's start with the definition. What is it to be indestructible? Yeah, so being indestructible means that you strive to do the things you say you're going to do. It doesn't mean that you never get distracted. That's impossible. We, we, we all will get distracted from time to time. But it means that you are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do, the kind of person who lives with personal integrity. And so how do we get there? Well, you all have the book. That's the first step. And so the way we get there is essentially by following these, these four steps, uh, which took me five years to, to research, uh, because I went down a lot of false paths. There's a lot of research out there that didn't flesh out. And there are also a lot of pet projects and, and pet ideas that people espouse that aren't backed by peer-reviewed studies. So I really wanted to write the kind of book that not only works, but also has techniques that have been uh, vetted by academic research. So a lot of the research is decades old stuff applied to this new space around this new challenge of personal technology and other distractions that we might face in our day-to-day -day lives. So tell us about these four big ideas. And also, they told me that we should be using the microphone very close to our mouth. I don't know whether they just said that to me because of my accent. <laughs> but just in case, they also meant it for you. Because we are also recording this for our Thrive Global podcast, so um, 
maybe you can sure especially since people want to really listen to you so tell us these four um big ideas that will help us become indestructible that you came up with sure so the basis of understanding distraction is to understand the opposite of distraction that the way to understand what distraction is is to understand what it is not and if you ask people okay what's the opposite of distraction they'll tell you focus but it's not focus the opposite of distraction is traction both words come from the same latin root trahare which means to pull and both words end in the same six letter word a c t i o n it spells action so traction and distraction both end in action now the definition of traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do in life things that you do with intent the opposite of traction is distraction any action that pulls you away from what you do things that you are not doing with intent so that's the first thing we have to understand we've got traction we've got distraction the reason this is so important to understand is that it frees us from a from a few problems the first problem is that many people these days like to have this moral hierarchy of different behaviors that you checking facebook that's not okay that's not all right but me watching football for 3 hours that's fine right that somehow my pastimes are morally superior to your pastimes and i argue that there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of these behaviors right there's nothing sinister about using facebook or enjoying youtube or spending time with your communicating with friends on instagram as long as it's done on your schedule and not on the app maker's schedule something that you do with intent the other thing that's really important when it comes to these two distinctions between traction and distraction is that unless we're careful distraction tricks us so we've all Well, I don't want to say you all. I, let me talk about what happened to me. I used to sit down at my desk every day and I'd say, "Now I'm going to work on that big project that I've been procrastinating. I'm finally going to do that thing that I've been putting off." Right after I check email. Right after I Google that one thing or watch that YouTube video or what's going on on Reddit again? Let me just check that one quick thing and then I'll get back to work, right? Well, even if I did something that was as worky or as uh uh seemingly productive as checking email, if that's not what I set out to do, if that's not what I plan to do with intent, then it is just as much of a distraction as playing a video game. So we have to start by differentiating what is traction for us in our life so that we can finally know the difference between traction and distraction. Okay. So we've got traction and distraction. Think about it like a number line. You've got to the right, you've got traction, to the left you've got distraction. Now, what prompts these two actions? Things that we want to do or things that we don't want to do, things that we regret. Two things prompt all human behavior. External triggers and internal triggers. External triggers, these are kind of the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that prompt us to either traction or distraction, right? And we'll talk about strategies to deal with them. But what turned out to actually be a greater source of distraction for most of our lives, the 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 more common source of distraction are not just the pings and dings, not the external triggers, but they are in fact the internal triggers. That when we talk about why we get distracted, we have to go one layer deeper. We have to ask ourselves, why do we do everything? What's the nature of human motivation? And many people will if you ask them okay what drives human behavior they're going to give you some version of carrots and sticks right this is called freud's pleasure principle that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain turns out it's not true 
that in fact, what drives human behavior is not the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's pain all the way down. Sorry. Everything we do, everything we do is about the need to escape from an uncomfortable sensation. Even searching for pleasure, even desire, craving, wanting. There's a reason we say love hurts. All of these things are psychologically destabilizing. And we know this physiologically to be true, right? If you, um, if you go outside and it's cold, that doesn't feel good. You put on a jacket. If you come back inside, now it's hot, you want to take it off, right? So physiologically, we know this is true. Psychologically, it's also true, right? If we, um, uh, if we feel lonely, what app or website do we check? Where do we go? We check Facebook. Somebody said Tinder? <laughs> okay, different kind of loneliness, but okay. If we're feeling uncertain, what website do we search? Where do we go? We Google it. And what about when, if we're feeling bored? Where do we go? We check the news. We check stock prices, sports scores. All of these products and services cater to these uncomfortable emotional triggers. So that's why we have to face this fact that the reason that we are so often driven to distraction is to escape an uncomfortable sensation. That in fact, if all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And that's why you called our smartphones our digital pacifiers. That's right, that's what they are. They are emotional pacification devices. Now, that might sound like a sinister thing, right? But these internal triggers are not necessarily a bad thing. One of the things that kind of troubles me about the self-help personal development industry is that we kind of have been sold this idea that if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with things, that you're somehow, something's wrong with you. And nothing could be further from the truth. That the base human condition is to constantly want, to constantly strive to be dissatisfied. That's what made our species survive. If there was ever a group of homo sapiens who were satisfied and happy all the time, our ancestors killed and ate them, I'm pretty sure, right? Because that would not be evolutionarily beneficial. So the idea here is not to repress these feelings. It's not to berate ourselves for feeling discomfort. It's to learn how to channel that, those internal triggers towards traction rather than distraction. These were two. Did you finish all four? Oh, sorry. Because I only sorry. have two. That was only two. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, just, so, I'm paying attention, okay? <laughs> That's, uh, so the first step is to master the internal triggers. Right. The second step is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. With pacts. Yes, and we can, of course, yeah. wherever you want right. to go with that. Okay, so why don't we start with... Um, the major distraction that technology has become, and I know in the book you say it's not the root of all evil and there are many other um, roots of distraction, but let's start with technology because we are also aware of it and we are aware that during those moments of dissatisfaction and boredom and whatever, instead of going deeper and coming up with a big idea, uh, we actually waste our time um, doing things that often don't just distract us, but in many cases make us unhappier and make us compare ourselves to somebody else's highlight reel, um, make us feel we're not good enough, etc. So, and I know you've also said that this is often intentional, that technology companies have used a lot of manipulative techniques to get to this point. So how do we address that? Right. So we need to acknowledge that distraction is not a new problem, right? That if, if Zuckerberg said, you know what, I'm sick of this, I'm turning off Facebook, 
people aren't going to start reading Chaucer and Shakespeare in their spare time, right? <laughs> that, people have always been distracted. Socrates and Plato talked about this 2,500 years ago, this nature of that we all have to do things against our better interests. People have been saying that the world is a distracting place for a very, very long time. What's changed is that if you are seeking distraction today, it's easier than ever to find. That because technology is so pervasive and so persuasive, you can always find that distraction. It's always with us it's at all times. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. So I don't subscribe to this narrative that technology is addicting everyone, that it's hijacking our brain. In fact, I think that's a very dangerous narrative because it teaches us learned helplessness. That when you use the language of addiction, many critics use this terminology a lot. You know, addiction is a pathology. Okay. And lots of things in, in society are potentially addictive to someone without addicting everyone. Right? We enjoy a glass of wine. We're not alcoholics. We, uh, uh, we, we, people who gamble on an occasional poker game are not problem gamblers. Uh, not everyone who has sex is a sex addict. So we need to put this stuff into perspective and realize that just because some people invariably become addicted to technology, we are not all addicted. And so one of the tactics for coping with these internal triggers is to reimagine our temperament. That the self-talk that we have in our own heads is a very powerful influence on what we do in our actions. So I'll give you one quick example. Um, we know that there's this idea that's been, now it's in folk psychology, but it, it was actually studied for a while, this idea of ego depletion. Ego depletion says that your willpower runs out like gas in a tank. And uh, many people believe this. You know, I used to come home every night after work and say, oh, I'm spent. I deserve some Ben and Jerry's, and I'm going to sit down on the couch, and I'm going to watch some Netflix, right? Because I'm, I'm spent. I have no more willpower left. And actually, there was some research by Roy Baumeister that found that this effect actually was, was present, except for the fact that these studies couldn't replicate. Other psychologists, when they tried to make these studies, uh, to replicate these studies, the effect, size, the effect didn't uh, replicate, except for one group of people. They found that there was actually one group of people who did experience ego depletion. They really did run out of willpower. And you know who those people were? People who believed that willpower was a limited resource. Those were the only people that actually, honest to goodness, experienced ego depletion. So when we tell ourselves that we are deficient, as I used to do, you know, I'd get distracted by something and say, see, I'm lazy. You see, I have a short attention span. You see, technology is addicting me. It's making me do this. When we do that, we, we engage this phenomenon called learned helplessness, and we stop even trying. And that is a really dangerous thought process. It is, and that's why you're going to give us a strategy to deal with it, right? Right. And, and the strategy is to know that it's not true. So, so there's two camps of people out there when it comes to dealing with distraction. The shamers and the blamers. The shamers say, I'm deficient. Something's wrong with me. I have a short attention span. I must be lazy. The blamers say, they're doing it to me. The tech companies are doing it to me. This device is doing it to me. That's, you know, they blame something else. And neither of those two aspects of thinking about this problem are correct because these are behaviors, and behaviors can change. We just need to learn this new set of techniques to help us deal with these technologies. Right. So that's really what I'd love us to spend some time on, the techniques and the packs and the strategies. Um, so why don't we start with uh, email? 
you know, everybody feels sort of overwhelmed by email. People somehow have bought into the email uh, um, inbo inbox zero uh, kind of holy grail. So what do we do about email? Yeah. So email falls under that third step of hacking back external triggers. And um, the idea behind this is that, yes, technology is designed to hack your attention. I should know from the inside of the industry. But that doesn't mean we can't hack back. That there's so much that we can do that ha we have way more power than the tech companies do, right? If you change your notification settings, if you rearrange a few things in your, in your techno life, there's nothing that the tech companies can do to switch those settings back. So let's take email, for example. So uh, there's lots we can do with email. Email is in this section of the book where there's eight different chapters, eight environments that we operate in that we can, we can change how we hack back these external triggers. So I want to give you just one quick tip so that you can walk away with something actionable that you can do right now to change your relationship with email. Who gets too much email, by the way, here? OK, so pretty much everyone? All right. So Shane Snow, where's Shane? Shane. Shane. Shane read an early manuscript of this book. And he used this technique and said he reduced his time spent on email by how much? 90%. 90%. How's that sound? Yeah. Here's what you do. We have to realize, so email, I call the mother of habit-forming technology. Because it utilizes, in the hooked model, in my first book, Hooked, I talk about this hooked model, trigger, action, reward, investment. And email is full of what we call intermittent reinforcement, these variable rewards. You don't know who's the email from. What's it going to say? Is it good news? Is it bad news? And it's constantly keeping us checking and pecking at our phones. So what we want to do is to remove some of that variability. And the way we do that is by realizing that the most important thing in every email you receive from a time management perspective is when the email needs a reply. So here's what I want you to do. Every time you open an email, you're going, to open, you're going to touch each email two times. The first time, you're going to open the message, you're going to read it, and you're going to ask yourself one question. That question is, when does this need a reply? If it's super urgent, just go ahead and reply now, right? If it's your house is burning down type email, take care of it right now. If you can delete it, delete it. But here's the problem. What most people do, they open an email, and they close it, and they read the next email. And they open an email, they close it, they read the next email. And where we waste our time is the constant rechecking of email, because we forgot what was in that email in the first place. So instead, you open the email, and you decide to put it into two categories, if it deser deserves a reply. You label it. You use one of the labels. You know, if you don't know how to do that, Google it. You use a label. And you tag it with either today or this week. So the key to getting less email in a period of time is sending fewer emails in a given period of time. And the way this technique helps you send fewer emails is that you are only going to reply to the emails that need a response today, today. And all the rest of them you're going to leave till later in the week. So in my calendar, this goes back to the, the second step around making time for traction, you're going to have time in your calendar for urgent daily emails. And you're just going to answer the urgent ones that you marked today. And then you're going to have one day a week, I call it Message Mondays, where I have a big three and a half hour block in my calendar to go through all those emails that need a response sometime this week. You would be amazed how many of those emails, if you give things just a little time to marinate, how many of those emails don't even need a reply after a few days. People take care of their own issues. <laughs> Stuff gets figured out without you. As opposed to playing this email ping pong game going back and forth every day, 
Just reply to the urgent ones in that time in your calendar for urgent emails and leave the rest to one time per week. I love that. It's going to make a huge difference to all our lives. Now, how do we solve the problem of fobbing? When we are with people, often people we love, but we are compelled. I'm not going to use the word addicted because he doesn't like it. Uh, compelled to check our phone. And uh, somehow we think that's more important than the person sitting next to us. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this probably happens to everyone. Uh, and there's a term, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it, the term fubbing, which means phone snubbing. Uh, it's a new, new term. It was invented just a few years ago. And, you know, most of us have gotten the message. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful that more people will get the message because we've been here before, right? I, I remember uh, when I grew up in the 80s, and my, my family can attest to this, I remember in our household, we had ashtrays all over the house. Because back in the mid-80s, if someone came to your house, they just expected to smoke in your living room. I remember my mom actually had an ashtray that looked like a, uh, a skeleton hand. So you wanted to give smokers a hint. But you were just expected, if you went to someone's house in the 1980s, you just expected to, be li to light up in their living room. Well, nobody does that today, right? At least someone would ask and say, hey, do you mind if I smoke? If not, most people just go outside if they want to smoke, right? Can you imagine if someone just came to your living room and, and lit up? No, of course they wouldn't do that. And so how did that change? Did it change because of legislation? Well, there's no law that says you can't smoke in someone's private living room. What changed was our norms. Right? This is called social antibodies, that societies adopt new practices to weed out harmful behaviors. So that is our responsibility. We need to spread these social antibodies that using your phone in a certain situation, in a social context, is not appropriate. So here's what you do. You're sitting around with some friends for lunch, for dinner, and somebody decides a good time to take out their phone. You can't say, hey, put away your phone. What you, want, what you feel inside is like, hey, this is taking time away from us, right? We came here to spend time together as friends, and now I can't have that experience with you. That's a little bit mushy. You can't go that far and be that vulnerable. <laughs> so instead, here's what you do. You ask one very simple question. You say, Ariana, is everything okay? <laughs> and this prompts one of two responses. Either the person will say, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry. I've got this emergency right now. I really need to take care of it. In which case, fine, go for it excuse yourself and take care of whatever emergency you're facing, or nine times out of 10, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and they'll put it away. So that simple question of, hey, is everything okay, is, is a fantastic way to get people to stop fubbing you. So, so you've never been sitting next to somebody who actually says, yes, why, and continues <laughs> looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you say, put your phone away. So you also write that um, although you believe in a time box schedule when you actually plan something and you're deliberate about it, sometimes it doesn't happen. And you give that horrible example of how you plan time to sleep, but you kept waking up at night. Yeah. And your solution is to plan the inputs, not the outcomes. Right. Tell us about that. Yeah, so step two is about making time for traction. Uh, and this has to do with turning your values into time. You know, when, if you ask people, what, do you, what are your values? Values are the attributes of the person you want to become. And if you said to them, okay, what are your values? What, what, what are the attributes of the person you want to become? You say, okay, what do I value in life? I, I value, I want to become the kind of person who takes care of their health, the kind of person who's a devoted family member, a, a committed spouse, someone who's a hardworking team member. 
Those values have to be reflected on your calendar. Because in this day and age, if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. Your boss, your kids, whatever's happening in the news, somebody is going to eat up that white space if you don't decide what you want to do at that time. When I was researching this book, I actually had a, a good friend who said, oh, I'm, I'm so distracted these days. I can't get anything done. My kids want this, and my boss wants that. And my, you know, my, the, the, well, do you hear what happened in the news? Can't find any time to do anything. I'm constantly distracted. And I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. Can I, can I see what you plan to do today? Can you show me your calendar? And she took out her phone, and she showed me her calendar, and it was blank. There's, there's nothing on it. <laughs> Maybe a dentist appointment or something. And it turns out, believe it or not, two-thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of calendar. The third that do, most of them don't keep the calendar correctly in that they don't keep a time box calendar. So in this day and age, we have to plan out every minute of our day. Now, does that mean we sometimes fall off track? Of course. I told you the definition of becoming indistractable is not that we never get distracted. It's that we strive to do what we say we're going to do. But for the first time, when you make a time box calendar, you can look at that calendar and say, ah, I see what is traction for my day because it's written right there. And anything that is not written on that calendar is a distraction. One of the mottos from the book is that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. It has to be written down. So the, your question is around like, okay, Nir, I got it. I made a time box calendar, and I planned time to do X, Y, Z. It didn't happen. And in my case, that example was sleep. So this was a revolution for me. I was not getting anywhere near as much sleep. And you know more than anyone, based on your book, how few people get enough sleep. So I did what the experts said, and I planned time not only for sleep, for getting ready for, for bed as well. But then here's what happened. I would go to sleep, and at 3 a.m. every night, I'd wake up, and I couldn't fall back asleep. And I didn't understand why, because I'd made the time, right? I did everything I was supposed to do, and I wasn't able to get back to sleep. And then, you know, what happened next? I started thinking to myself, oh my gosh, if I don't get back to sleep soon, well, then my entire day tomorrow is going to be shot, and I'm not going to be able to give that talk, and my writing time is going to be terrible, and I'm probably not going to, you know, all this bad stuff is going to happen. I started ruminating about the problem. And then when I started doing some research on insomnia, it turns out one of the leading causes of insomnia is worrying about insomnia, right? It's a very common problem. So here's what I did. I controlled the inputs, not the outputs, meaning I can't control if my body is going to get the sleep it needs. What I can control is the time that I give an opportunity for my body to get the sleep it needs. So here's what I did. When I wake up at 3 in the morning, I repeated this mantra. The body gets what the body needs. The body gets what the body needs. And I would keep saying this to myself. And it turns out by repeating that simple mantra and letting myself relax with the understanding that if I needed sleep, my body would fall asleep. And if it wasn't tired, that's okay too because it'll make up for it the next night. You know where this story is going, right? I started to relax. I stopped ruminating. And I started falling asleep again. And that same story applies to when I sit down at my desk. I can't make myself come up with the most brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning article. I can't do that. I don't know when, that's when a good idea is going to come to me when I sit at my desk. You can't will yourself to suddenly be creative and generate an idea that's awesome on command. What I can do is commit to the input of getting my butt in that chair when I say I will. That's what I have to do. Because if I don't do that, right, if I'm not in that chair in order to do the work, if I'm not in bed when I say I will, when I will be, for sure I'm not going to get quality sleep. For sure that good idea is not going to come to me. So plan the outputs, I plan the inputs, not the outputs.
And what, some, what about some specific things? Like I did a podcast recently with Lisa Kudrow, and she said her problem is that if she has to wake up early in the morning, like sometimes we have to catch a flight or uh, do something that's really early, then she can't sleep just because she has to wake up early in the morning. So what can we do when our mind kind of distracts us because of a specific thing that's about to happen and interrupt, you know, something that we actually need. Yeah. So rumination is one of these four cognitive quirks that we all have that keeps us perpetually perturbed. It's one of these sources of internal triggers. It causes anxiety, just the churning of a problem time and time again. And that's why we need, so in the book I talk about how to cope with internal triggers, we need to reimagine them. We need to think about them differently. So instead of thinking about them in a pernicious way, so instead of ruminating about, oh my gosh, if I don't get sleep, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, we wanna find a way to cope with that internal trigger in a healthier manner. So by telling yourself, the body gets what the body needs. If I get crappy sleep tonight, I'll make it up the next night, right? As long as I give myself sufficient time to do what I need to do, my body will take that opportunity. So I see we're both wearing these aura rings, yeah. right? And this, see, matching. <laughs> They yes, come exactly. in many colors, but we picked them. Tell, tell them about the aura ring. So what's, great, what's amazing, it? this thing? So it's not, it's not for fashion. It, it has these little microchips inside, and it tracks your sleep. And what's amazing about this thing, so back to this theory of the body gets what the body needs, this has verified that for me. So what will happen if I, get, if I have to go on a flight and I get terrible sleep on the flight, the next night I'll go straight into deep sleep because the body gets what the body needs. So my body will adjust and go straight into more deep sleep the next night ahead. And of course, what's ironic about that, now that I've known it, I've, I've seen the data prove it to me, now I don't stress so much if I don't get the, the bad sleep the first night, because I know the body will make up for it later on. So how did you sleep last night? How did I sleep last night? Pretty well, actually, pretty good. <laughs> how many hours? How many hours? I don't, I don't, my daughter has my phone, but I can check it out. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't introduce your daughter. Yeah. You're the most important person. Can you get up and uh, can we applaud you? <laughs> the, the book is actually dedicated to, uh, to my daughter, and uh, she was actually a big reason why I wrote the book, because it was this seminal moment with my daughter when I was, uh, we had this afternoon together, and we had this activity book of things that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the questions in the book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And no, it gets worse. It's not cute yet. It's really bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And uh, I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what she said. Because when she told me this, what superpower she wanted, I found myself distracted on my phone. Uh, and she got the message, and she left the room, and she started playing with some toy outside, and when I looked up, she was gone. Um, and so that was one of the reasons that I decided I had to write this book. I had to figure out for myself. I wish I could tell you it only happened once. It didn't. It happened on multiple occasions. I would do it to my friends. I would be distracted at my desk, and that's why I really decided I had to figure this out for myself. I actually um, told that story to a, a friend of mine, and so he went home and asked his daughter what superpower she would want, and she told him that she would want the power to talk to animals. And he said, the power to talk to animals, why is that? And she said, so that when mommy and daddy are on their phones, I'll have someone to talk to. <laughs> I know! <laughs> so this is, this is a problem that many, many parents have, have experienced. But the good news is, so that story started me along this journey. 
prompted me to, to, to prodded me, I should say, to figure out solutions for myself. I mean, I'm patient zero here. I wanted answers to solve distraction for myself. And, uh, and, and so that was the, was the catalyst to explore the deeper psychology and provide some solutions to not only myself, but hopefully to other folks as well. But also, it's, we have found that Thrive, that sharing stories like this is what moves the needle for other people's behavior more than anything else. Because people want to hear from others who are in the arena, like you, you know, you are incredibly productive, you're incredibly successful, and you are taking these steps to actually be with your daughter, to be present in your life. And we are so caught up in this collective delusion that if we take our foot off the accelerator, we're going to fall off forever. But if we hear from people who are in the arena, as opposed to, say, chilling under a mango tree, uh, it has a real impact. So we collect this story. So we would love to take this excerpt from the book and publish it on Thrive. And I, and I, I love the story that Philip Schindler, who is the chief business officer at Google, told me um, a few months ago. And I asked him to write about it, so it's now on Thrive. But he said to me, I came back from a long trip. I have young children. I told my kids, Daddy's taking you to the playground. My five-year-old said, oh, no, can't the babysitter take us? <laughs> and he asked why, and the little boy said, because when you're in the playground, you're always on your phone. And, and the great thing is that he said, that was my moment of epiphany. From that moment on, I never take my phone when I'm with my kids. You know, he travels a lot, he works hard. It's not like he's with his kids all the time. But what was powerful was the impact it had on other employees at Google, who felt almost like they now had permission to do the same. So it is a little countercultural still. We're living in a culture that still believes that we need to be always on to succeed and to do a good job. So anytime we can identify people who can tell stories about why that's not true, it's amazing. So if anybody here has stories about this or any other way you are uh, helping yourself become indestructible, we'll publish them and then link to the orders to buy the book. So um, <laughs> you can send them directly to me, ah at thriveglobal.com. And then we'll give you a password, and you can post other stories that happen in the course of this journey, because it's a journey. And as Nir said, says both tonight and in the book, nobody claims they're doing it perfectly. You know, we are all works in progress. And if we can support each other and learn from each other, it's a much more amazing journey. And uh, this might be a good moment to go to questions. And... Uh, I understand that the questions are going to be on the screen behind. And so if you have not sent your question, please do so now. And if you want more strategies and tips and techniques, here you are. So while um, we're getting that working, oh, here it is. So has distraction ever led you towards something incredible? No. <laughs> Next question. No. Uh, distra okay, so 
I'm a, I'm a stickler for words. I think words really matter because we can misidentify different terms and then everybody gets confused and becomes a, jungle, a jumbled mess. So I hate distraction. What I don't hate is diversion, reprioritization. Those things are fine. External triggers. <laughs> so a distraction by definition is any action that pulls you away from what you want to do. There's nothing good about distraction. However, a diversion of attention can be great. For example, we know that, there are, that when children who have a chronic illness in the hospital are allowed to play a video game, they rate their treatment as less painful. Well, that's not exactly a distraction according to my de definition. That is a diversion of attention. And we can use that for good things. So maybe this is a bit of semantics, but uh, distraction is never good. However, a, a thoughtful use of diversion of attention is great. And by the way, you can make time for diversions. I want you to put time in your calendar for Netflix because that helps us divert our attention uh, through a movie or a great book or diverting your attention through meditation or taking a long walk. Schedule those things. Those things should be in our calendar. In fact, for me, you know, I found myself in this habit of constantly check, uh, checking social media and email all the time. Well, now I have time in my calendar to check Facebook and Instagram. I love these tools. They keep me in touch with many of the folks in this room that I wouldn't have otherwise been in touch with because I have time for those things in my calendar. How I much turn time? About, about an hour a day. An hour a day? Yeah, yeah, after dinner is typically when I relax on the couch and check some Instagram. And uh, I turned what would otherwise be a distraction into a form of traction because it's exactly what I plan to do with that and, time. And what about notifications? Are you allowing notifications? So, so there's these eight different environments that we need to hack back the external triggers. And our phones, this is almost the kindergarten stuff that I think for many people in this room, you've already taken a step to change your notification settings. But it turns have out- you? Has everybody here changed their notifications? Anybody who hasn't? <laughs> turns, <laughs> believe it or not, two thirds of Americans have never changed their smartphone notification settings. Two thirds. <laughs> and this doesn't take very long. In fact, it's just a, a few pages in the book. I can tell you in less than 40 minutes how to make your phone indistractable. It's not that hard. But that's, that's kind of kindergarten stuff. But what about the less kindergarten stuff, like notifications from CNN or the Huffington Post or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or um, news that the, the desire to know the minute President Trump tweets something else crazy? Yeah. Is that. Do you think people have handled that too? I don't think they have. So the, the fundamental question is, is the trigger serving you or are you serving it? If it is in accordance with your values, an external trigger can be wonderful. If you get a notification on your phone that says, hey, it's time for that meeting, it's time to work out, then that can prompt you towards traction. And it's a very useful external trigger. However, if the external trigger is prompting you away from what you plan to do with your time, you're with your daughter and you get a ping on your phone and now you're checking the news, but of course not the Huffington Post. Uh, but you're checking, you're checking the news instead of being with someone you love. Well, that's a distraction. Okay. So it's really about asking yourself this fundamental question: Is the trigger serving me, or am I serving it? So the distinction that I make—I don't know if you agree with it—is is the trigger meant for me? Like, is this prompting me as a reminder for what I have to do, or is the trigger universal? Like news of the moment. For me, that's a very clear distinction. I do not allow any 
notifications that are not specifically for me. That's right. That's right. So that's a that's a great piece of advice. So the only notifications I allow on my phone are the phone a phone call itself, and even then I restrict it. I use Do Not Disturb While Driving mode. I'm not sure if you folks have, have used this before. It's fantastic. This Do Not Disturb While Driving mode. You turn it on. By the way, you don't have to use it only while you drive. I use it all the time, and it sends an auto reply that says, "If this is urgent, text me with the word urgent." So when I do my focused work time for the day, when I'm doing my writing or some big project that requires concentration or I want to be fully present with the people I'm with, I can turn on Do Not Disturb While Driving. And if it really, really is urgent, then the person will text the word urgent and the message will come through. And this is free. This is built into our phones. No, I love it. It's built on the iOS phones. And we at Thrive built it for Android phones. And if I may say so, it's even better. Because what you can do is um, let's say you're having dinner with your beautiful family and you don't want to be disturbed. If I text you, I'll get a text back that says, Nier is in thrive mode until such and such a time. So it both it tells me thrive mode, which I think is better than just do not disturb, which sounds a little more aggressive. <laughs> and, and also it gives me the time. So that, you know, I know that you'll be done in two hours or three hours and when I can reach you again. So... And nine times out of ten, people won't text you with the word urgent because it's not really urgent. Yeah, they just exactly. don't realize that you're busy right now. They can, it can totally wait for a bit. So if anybody here, if there's one person here that has an Android phone, I doubt it. But if there is, <laughs> there is. Okay, those of you with Android phones, you can download it for free and, um, and use it. Next question. How do you employ strategic waste of time? Yeah. So Why is everybody anonymous? <laughs> <laughs> so the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. As long as you plan that time for yourself. That sounds very zen, doesn't it? <laughs> it but here's the thing. We know what we will do with the big open white space on our calendar. You'll do this. Something is going to distract you. Something is going to eat up that time. Whether if it's not something on your phone, it's your boss or your kids or something going on. So if you plan the time to do whatever you want, that's fantastic. But do it with intent. Do it on your schedule as opposed to somebody else's. Next question. If you don't have another question, I have plenty. Um, okay, Patrick McGinnis, I'm so glad that you did not call yourself anonymous. In the spirit of Hooked, you have invested in companies that make habit-forming products. What kinds of companies are you seeing in the indestructible space? Yeah, so there's several. So including Thrive, I think that's a terrific example of how we can use tech to help us prevent getting distracted from tech. So of course, I think Thrive products are a terrific example. Uh, another product, uh, where's Taylor from Focusmate? Taylor from Focusmate here. Has anybody used Focusmate.com? Yeah? It's a fantastic product. Full disclosure, I love the product so much I actually invested in it. Here's how Focusmate works. When you want to do focused work, you go onto Focusmate, you find yourself a Focusmate, you book that time with another person, and you will be connected to another person somewhere in the world for that period of time. It's kind of like, remember Chat Roulette, right? But without all the dirty bits, right? <laughs> it's kind of like that. And it's incredible because what you, so I, I use the product very frequently. It's particularly great if you have time on your calendar to get focused work done and you have some trouble getting started and you need someone to hold yourself accountable to say, okay, I'm going to start 9 a.m. on that big project that I'm working on. You have a little video of a, of a focus mate that you see there on your screen and you say, hi, I'm near. Okay, I'm so-and-so. What are you working on? What are you working on? Go. 
And having that other person, someone that you can see that you know they're working hard and you're working hard, this is a form of a pre-commitment device. This is that fourth step about preventing distraction with pacts. Another product I use every day, uh, um, uh, Steve will know this product from uh, Forest. Forest is, a, is an app that we use that uh, you open the app, you dial in how much time you want to do focused work for, and as soon as you hit go, a little virtual tree is planted, okay? Now, if you pick up that phone and do anything with it, the little virtual tree dies. <laughs> and you don't want to be a virtual tree murderer. So that little pre-commitment, this pact that you made with yourself that tells you, oh, this is not what you want to be doing right now, is, is one of these pre-commitment devices that we can use to keep us on track. So here's another one of the mottos from the book. Feel free to tweet. That's allowed. Uh, that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If you wait until the current moment when you are feeling impulsive, right, if the chocolate cake is on the way to your face, it's too late. Okay, If your phone is next to you on your bedstand, if you're sleeping with your phone next to you, it's too late. They're going to get you. You know they're going to get you. It's too late. You have to plan ahead. So the antidote for impulsiveness is forethought. And it turns out there is no technology out there that I've seen at least today that we can't do something about, that we can't make sure that we can hack back in some way by planning ahead, by making one of these pre-commitments. And you actually mentioned something incredibly important that's my number one micro step for behavior change, uh, which is the phone beside you by your bed. So tell us about your nightly ritual. <laughs> sure. Um, so this is a little weird with my mom here, but uh, let me tell let, let me tell you, can, oh, she left? Okay, great, okay. good. Uh, what about your child? So let me, let me yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good point, too. I forgot she was here. So, uh, I'll, I, so can you go, Jasmine? Can you go? For, let, me, let me tell you if it's okay. And if it's okay with uh, Julie. You can. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. So, uh, Julie and I have been married for 18 years now. And thank you. <laughs> and uh, a few years ago, we found that we did not have time to be intimate together. That night after night, I was fondling my iPhone, and she was caressing her iPad. And we, weren't, we didn't have time to be intimate together uh, because later and later into the night, this is you know, before I, I, well before I started working on the book, uh, we were entranced by our devices. And we kind of were having this digital love affair with our tech as opposed to each other. So we decided to do something about it. And so one of the solutions we came up with, this is an example of a pre-commitment device. I went to the hardware store and I bought us a $5 outlet timer. Now this outlet timer will turn on and off whatever's plugged into it at any time of day or night. And I set this outlet timer to 10 p.m. every night, and I plugged in my internet router. So every night at 10 p.m., my internet shuts off, right? And so this technique is a form of a pre-commitment device. I decided in advance that I no longer want to get distracted by my tech. I don't want to check email. I don't want to check social media past 10 o'clock. That's when I should start getting ready for bed. And so that has worked miracles. In fact, since we use this technique, now we haven't even upgraded. Now we, we bought um, uh, this router. It's called the Eero router, E-E-R-O. It actually has this functionality built into it. And it's, it's great because you can leave the smart devices on, like the Amazon Alexa or whatever other device on, and decide for certain devices should turn off at a certain time of night. So this pre-commitment device, right, this pact that I have made with myself and with my family, helps us stay 
uh, it helps make sure we don't get distracted and that we stay on our path to traction. I have a lot of other questions, but your daughter is still here. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ilana Raya. Middle schoolers often feel pressure to respond to texts or DMs immediately. What strategies can they add to their day to lessen that pressure? Okay, so I don't know whether to tackle the pressure piece or the middle schoolers piece. So one thing, I, I uh, ooh, should we talk about kids or should we talk about, what should we talk about? Let's talk about kids, kids. because uh, even if uh, there aren't a lot of kids here, many people here do have kids. Yeah. So tell us. Okay, so quick, quick rule. Uh, I don't think middle schoolers should have smartphones. Sorry. Uh, they certainly should not have social media accounts. Because the manufacturers of these products, right, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, they all tell you 13 is the age limit. And so why are we using products the manufacturers themselves say, tell us not to let our kids use below a certain age? And you say, oh, but all the other kids are using them and I wanted it. So <laughs> we're paying the bills here as parents. We, so I think that's a very simple quick hit. Now, that's the easy stuff. When it comes, there's a whole section in the book on how to raise indistractable kids. And basically, the, the chapter is really about how throughout the history of parenting, we parents have looked for convenient excuses. Reasons why our kids act in crazy ways uh, that have nothing to do with us or the kids, something outside ourselves. For example, I'm about to bust a serious myth here. The sugar high. Do you know the sugar high is a complete myth? That they've done studies uh, that show that, you know, meta-studies, studies of studies that find that there's no such thing as a sugar high, except for parents. Parents, when their kids are given a placebo that's not sugar, and they think their kid has been given sugar, act crazy. The parents act crazy, right? They, they, they berate their kids, they think their kids are acting differently because there is no such thing as a sugar high other than in the mind of parents. And we see something very similar happening with technology right now. That technology is this boogeyman that in fact obfuscates the real issue of what's going on with our kids these days. So let me dive into this for a second because I think it's fascinating. It's actually my favorite section of, of the book about how to raise indistractable kids. I delved into the research of uh, Desi and Ryan. Desi and Ryan are the, the founders of what's called self-determination theory. This is a 40-plus-year-old theory of human uh, thriving, and it says that all human beings require three things for psychological flourishing. We all require a sense of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Okay, every single one of us. And this, again, this is the most widely studied theory of human motivation and theory and, and, and flourishing. Competence, autonomy, and relatedness. When we look at our children's lives today, they are deficient in these three psychological nutrients. When we think about competency, you know, one thing that has increased along with the increased use of cell phones in society, another thing that has increased for school-aged children is the amount of standardized testing that our kids are subjected to every year and teachers teaching towards these tests. So there is a subset of children in our country who are constantly taught that they are incompetent. And when they don't get the feeling of competency, which we all need to flourish psychologically, they don't get it in the real world, guess where they go? They go online, where Minecraft makes them feel like gods. They feel competent in this online universe. 
Think about autonomy, the second core human psychological need according to self-determination theory. Autonomy says that we all need the sense that we control our environment, that we have freedom in our day-to-day -day lives. But according to the work of Peter Gray, children today have 10 times as many restrictions as an adult placed on them, twice as many as an incarcerated felon. <laughs> there are only two places in society where children I'm sorry, there are only two places in society where people are told where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with, how to dress, and that's school and prison. <laughs> and so are we surprised when children come home from school and they want freedom, they want autonomy, they want a sense of agency. And of course, the tech companies are more than happy to provide it to them, right? Because they control these online universes. And then finally, relatedness. One of the things that we've seen over the past 50 years is a collapse in the number of hours that kids spend playing. Not playing baseball supervised by a coach or a parent, but free play, being children. The way that most of us were raised, where we could just go outside and play with our friends. That doesn't happen anymore in this country. I remember you know, the, the neighborhoods of this country used to sing with the song of children playing. You just don't hear that anymore because of two reasons. One, parents are scared to death by the media that their kids are going to be abducted, right? Stranger danger, and uh, even though that's ridiculous, this is the safest time in American history to be a child. It's, been, it's safer than ever to be a child today. Or kids are so hyper-scheduled between swimming and Kumon and Mandarin and test prep that they have no time for free play. And it turns out that free play is one of the most psychologically nourishing things we can do for our kids because play is where we learn our place in the world. And we learn that through relatedness, by understanding others and having others understand us. But when kids don't get relatedness in their life in the real world, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, these products, these social networks provide them what they're missing. And so this is the root cause. The proximal cause is the technology. The root cause is that they are deficient in these three psychological nutrients. And if we don't address that problem, they will always find distraction in one form or another. That's great. We could go on all night, but I know we've already gone over time. So let us take one last question. From Paul Paré, should the FTC at some point step in to combat the more pernicious social media techniques as an unfair trade practice? This is the one we have to end on? <laughs> uh, this is a tough one because it's, it's short on specifics. Right? It's, it's hard to talk in generalizations. Um, I do think that there are some uh, proposals out there. So Senator Hawley had this, has this bill uh, around regulating social media, and he wants to um, make some of these practices illegal. For example, he wants to end autoplay so that you can't go from one video to the next to the next. Uh, and he wants to have it so that after 30 minutes of scrolling through Twitter, you get an announcement that says, oh, you've been using Twitter for 30 minutes. Do you want to keep using it or whatever? Um, and so he wants you know, these, these proposals that limit use. And I, I'm, I'm not super political about this stuff. I don't know if I feel super strongly about one proposal or another. I do think, however, that there's two potential problems. One, I don't think we should unfairly punish one form of media versus another. So last time I checked, you know, I can understand if you want to regulate uh, and ban autoplay of Google, I'm uh, sorry, of YouTube or Netflix. But last time I checked, Fox News and CNN were autoplaying for like decades now. And where is the proposal to stop these 
forms of media from playing endlessly. You know, there's a thing called a news junkie. And so what tends to happen is the new technologies are the ones that we're all scared of. But the older technologies that were somehow familiar, they seem natural. They seem like they've always been here, and they couldn't possibly be harmful. And that's ridiculous. Anything can be a distraction, and anything can be traction if it's what we plan to do with our time. The second thing that I think is very dangerous about this is that it, it medicalizes this idea of addiction, that we can just all become addicted to anything. And that is not true. Right? We know this from common sense, that we all just don't become addicted to everything. I mean, we talked about earlier about you know, we're not all alcoholics, even though we enjoy a, a glass of wine from time to time. We're not all gambling addicts, even though we enjoy a game of poker. So by calling the product the problem, this is going back to a very old misconception. This is you know, Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. It, 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 that abstinence is not uh, how we control these products. We go deeper. And we, un we try and ask ourselves, why do we overuse? And we realize that we need to help the people who are actually addicted and leave the rest of us the hell alone to make our own decisions. So the people we do need to help, and this is a proposal I've, I've championed for over three and a half years now, and I've met with Reddit and Facebook and Instagram. I've met with all of these companies with this proposal, and I call this a use and abuse policy. The silver lining about all this data that's being collected about us is that if they wanted to, companies could reach out to the people who actually do have a pathology of addiction using a very simple metric. How much time are they spending on this product? So if you overuse alcohol, the distillers don't know who you are. How could they know who is an alcoholic versus not? How would they know how much one person consumes versus another? The silver lining about all this data that's being collected, they know. The gaming companies, the social media networks, they know how much time we are spending on these products. So my simple proposal is let's reach out to the people who use the product to an outside extent. Right? So we have a use and abuse policy that says after so many hours a week, we're going to reach out with a simple message. Can we help? And help the people who actually have the pathology of addiction and offer assistance to those folks who really do need help but for the rest of us, the folks who are not children, children deserve special protection, of course. There's lots of things in society that we don't let just children do uh, all the time. And, for, and, and people who are actually addicted, they deserve special protection. But for the rest of us, this is a personal responsibility issue. And the good news is, is that there is so much we can do about it. So this line that it's hijacking our brains and there's nothing we can do is really self-defeating. Because as we talked about tonight, we can master those internal triggers, we can make time for traction, we can hack back the external triggers, and we can prevent distraction with PACs. That's how we become indistractable. Thank you so much. And let's all become indistractable. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Ariana and to Nir. Um, before all of you pick up and jet, if you uh, want to stick around for a bit, grab a drink. Um, Nir is going to be in the library back here signing books, which thankfully all of you have a copy of now. Um, so thanks again to Nir and to Ariana, and uh, thanks so much for coming tonight, guys.